I have a few extra minutes this morning. I'm going to need them. There's lots in what we're going to talk about. Again, we hope you had a good 4th of July. Uh, somebody gave us a gift certificate to Jake's, and we went and picked out things. Actually, took grandkids and all that, because I don't know what I'm getting. And uh, just had a ball doing that and then, and then doing some of them. I'm actually kind of scared of fireworks, not watching them and being around them, but lighting them and all that. Uh, growing up in Ohio, they were completely illegal, and I, I think maybe still are. Now, when I was preaching full-time, I would say something like that, and I wouldn't say I think on it. I would just say it like it was gospel, but now you can just punch in your phone. I understand that and check on that. You, you can, if I say, well, they're still illegal in Ohio, you could just punch in and say, no, there's bottle rockets, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So that's why I preface all that. And I remember when I was in the first house we lived in that I remember very well, and we were prob- I was probably about five when we moved there. Um, a dad had a little, uh, in their room, uh, in their closet, up in the corner, I can still picture it. There was just a little brown bag, and it was, I, I think, like one of those size that you would take a lunch in in the old days, one of those small lunch bags. And, and it had some contents in it, and then the top was kind of twisted, and it sat up in the corner all year long. And in that bag, and, and again, they're completely illegal, uh, was a handful of M80s, and, which I think are pretty much illegal now still everywhere. But he would get out one of those, one of those on the 4th of July and light it and, and blow it up. And those things made a pretty decent little crater in the ground back then. And they were pretty excited for us. But I don't know if that's what started me on that, just being a little leery of lighting fireworks and all that kind of thing. But I'm sure, sure tickled to watch them, you know. And, and they seem to just get bigger and bigger every year, the number of people doing them and so forth. Again, next Monday, not tomorrow, the one after, uh, Jim's going to be here in the office. He's going to start that day. And uh, we look forward to that. And uh, I've been telling people for six months, this is my go-to. When they come up and say, start to say, Dan, something's broke down or, or you know, whatever, something didn't flush or there's a spill or somebody threw up or whatever, I always say I'm the interim. You, somebody's coming on July 21st and you can tell them. Now, I really don't want you to do that. But the idea of that is, by the time he gets here, you'll forget whatever the complaint is anyway, won't you? It'll be something different. I remember in, in my first ministry, a rural ministry, my roommate was preaching just down the road five miles. And he, uh, in, in early days, and I did this too in the early days of preaching, would go in early Sunday morning and go over the sermon, preach it to an empty, you know, building, but just to go through it. And Tim would always do that, and he had one lady, and she's long since passed away. Her name was Jessie, in, in bright red hair and the personality to match that. I mean, she was fiery. But she would always be the first one there like an hour early, and it was mainly to complain to him about something. And often, it was to complain to him about him. So he didn't really look forward to that. It was almost every single week. But fortunately, their, their entryway, there was an outside door, and then there was an inside door before you came in the auditorium, and Tim would be up there preaching, and he'd hear that. He, he was the one to tell me this story. 
he would hear that outside door and he would know, uh-oh, Jessie's coming and she's going to complain about something and probably she's going to complain about me and I don't want to start the day that way. Well, the pulpit's up here. It was not a lot of like this, but there's a wall all the way across and then the piano's right here and then the organ's right there and right over there about where our organ is, but on the other side of it, there's a stairway that leads downstairs and when they got downstairs in that old church building, there was a tunnel down there from the church building into the parsonage where he lived, right into the basement of the parsonage. So when he would hear that outside door open, he would get down on his hands and knees. This is the truth. And he would crawl behind the piano, behind the organ. He'd get down those steps, and he'd go right in the tunnel over to his house, and he'd be gone. And he'd come back in time to start lead the worship in no complaints. <laughs> now that's how we want to start it for Jim, isn't it? No complaints, just... I said last week, an enthusiasm and expectation of what God's going to do through him and through us uh, with him. Okay. We're studying the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, and we've been doing it chapter by chapter and reading almost every single verse and paragraph of, of each chapter as we study it. And this morning we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is why I said I need a little more time. The second part of this, uh, nearly half of chapter 4, is certainly my favorite passage in the book of, or letter of 1 Thessalonians, but it's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And if I'm doing a funeral service of a saint, of a Christian person, I almost always read this passage. Almost always. Not because it's sad and solemn. I guess you could look at it from an angle where that's kind of true. But because it's so exciting and so celebratory. Maybe, maybe if you read out of the New International Version, the, the heading for that second half of the chap, fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians says the coming of the Lord. And it might just as well put after that, and the going of the saints, because that's what it's about. But I thought, as, as I started the book, I thought, man, I'm going to preach that whole thing on that. But then as I studied it this week, I thought, you know, I can't leave out the first part of that chapter because it's got some, such good practical advice about how to please God. And then as I studied it more and began to put things together, I really ended up with more on that first part that I wanted to spend less time on and less on the more, what I like, you know, real exciting part and what I want to spend more time on. So I, I really needed that extra couple of minutes. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll read parts of this, maybe end up uh, reading just about all of it as we study, again, what Paul's writing to the people at Thessalonica, the Christians there. Remember, he helped start that church by way of a fast um, summary of the book. He helped start that church along with his traveling companions, uh, Silas and Timothy, and then they had to leave because of opposition and persecution. And, and he was concerned about them because he knew that would keep going. And so he sent, we read this last week, he sent Timothy back there to check on him. And Timothy has just now gotten back and has a really good report about the Christians there. Hey, they're, they're holding up well despite the persecution. 
Paul, as he commends them, calls that standing firm. He's glad to hear that they're standing firm. And he'll go on in chapter 4 and kind of give them some, some, and he's talked about this earlier in the first three chapters, about pleasing God. Our goal here has got to be pleasing God. It certainly will be in heaven, but it's easier to kind of forget that and maybe, maybe lose sight of that as other things you know, get busy and crowded in our lives and so forth. But it's all about, Paul says, pleasing God. And then he's going to say, this is how you do that. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As in fact you are living. You're doing that, but then he's going to encourage them to keep doing that and explain how to do that. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Do what? Please God. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now that's important not to miss. Mention it just one sentence quickly. Paul's not telling them this stuff on his own authority. It comes from God. It comes from Jesus. Now here, here's how to do it. You want to know how to please God. This is what Paul's going to talk about. These, the first part of this chapter is going to be pleasing the Lord, and then we're going to talk about the coming of the Lord. So, pleasing the Lord. Verse 3, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God didn't call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Likely if you crossed paths with Don this morning, he handed you a little slip of paper and it has that verse on it. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction doesn't reject man, but he rejects God who gave you, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So, he's talking about living to please God, and now he tells them how to do that, or a part of how to do that. He says, we instruct you, and then he says, we ask you, we urge you, and the instructions we gave you. So Paul wants them to know, to be knowledge about, to have no doubt about what they need to do to please God, especially in a culture that isn't. And, and a culture, a city that has problems in these areas he's going to tell them about. Now when he tells them to live a holy life, he says, it's God's will that you be sanctified. Now that simply means to be set apart for God's use. To be separated from, from evil and to be set apart for God. So God wants you to be sanctified, set apart for Him. Now the first thing you need to do is you need to avoid sexual immorality. Paul, I imagine, is talking about both before marriage and certainly during marriage. He has to know about, it's obvious as they look around their culture, 
there's incredible amount and kinds of perversion going on. And that's true in our culture today as well. And Paul says, in order to please God, in order to be sanctified and set apart for God's use, we need to avoid sexual immorality. Part of that, but maybe kind of separate continuation, you have to learn how to control your own body. Now, I thought yesterday, I had lots of things going on this fall that I feel like I need to be in better physical shape for, okay? Mountains and stuff like that, and I need to be able to do more than I think I can do right now, despite getting older each year. So yesterday I thought, Marla wasn't up yet to laugh at me, so I'm going to start today. We walk pretty frequently, but I'm going to start today trying to run a little bit. So I opened the front door, and I ran to the mailbox and back, made it the whole way, and I was nearly dead. Now, I know what you're thinking, no. The mailbox isn't on the front porch. And it's not even really at the end of a short driveway. We have a pretty long driveway. It's 250 yards from our door to our mailbox. So if I make it there and back, it's about 500 yards or less, just a little more than a quarter of a mile. So. I actually was fairly pleased with myself, but I have to do a lot better than that. I can't almost die just running no farther than that. And, and running is being generous. That was kind of like a, a, a jog or maybe even a little bit faster walk. But I was trying to get into better shape. I was trying to control my body physically to be in better shape. Paul's saying we need to learn to control our own body sexually. And when we demonstrate that kind of control as God wants us to do and God wants us to be, then we're starting to please God. We're on our way to living a holy life because that's one of the biggest areas, one of the biggest areas where we can stumble and fall and fail. I thought it was so interesting. You can't hardly watch any of the news now without the, 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 the pro-choice slash abortion uh, debate versus the pro-life thing going on now because so many states, upwards of a dozen of them, are passing more restrictive abortion laws right now, and so it's much in the news. And almost always when somebody's interviewed pro-abortion, the, arg the current argument now has evolved in a, right, a woman's right to her own body, to make decisions about her own body. Strangely enough, God absolutely agrees with that. A woman and a man should be Christian woman and man should be able to control their own body. But he's not talking about after a baby's been conceived. He's talking about long before that. 
before that ever becomes an issue. As a matter of fact, if we Christians do that, if we get control of that, then that baby's existence won't be an issue. That's what Paul's saying. We need to learn to control our own bodies in a holy and an honorable way. Not, not in passionate lust like the heathen or people who aren't committed to God. Who, people who it's not incumbent upon them to do it the way God designed for it to be done. But it is for us. We're different from the world. It's easy to get caught up in, and I do it myself. I don't want to stand out. I don't want people to think I'm funny or strange or different or whatever. I want to blend in and look like everybody else, but we can't. We're different. God gave us guidelines and boundaries for a reason. And then he tacks on there, interest. And don't wrong your brother. That person that someone's flirting with, or even fooling around with, they belong to someone else. They made a lifelong vow to someone else. Maybe even a Christian brother or sister. And God goes on to say, the issue then is not really between you and that person or you and that person's spouse. or Rather, it's between us and God. Wow. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. Someone who rejects this instruction doesn't reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. We're also, besides living a holy life, we're supposed to live a, a loving life. And he just touches on that in verses 9 and 10. And, and the main thing he says is that we need to, and he's talked about this earlier in the book a couple of times, we need to love each other. It needs to be evident that we Christians love each other. Not only does it make it much more tolerable and much easier to endure suffering and, and persecution from outsiders and so forth when we stick together and when we love each other, but God's, God commands us to do that. And it will impress people, Paul says, that don't know God. Verse 11, we're to live 
not only a holy life and a loving life, but we're to live a quiet life. Hmm. It's getting more and more unusual. Isn't it weird we use the phrase, mind your own business, and Paul said that, and, and God said that, and no doubt we're the original ones to say that. We Christians need to mind our own business and work with our hands, stay busy, work. Not only so there won't be anything bad to say about us, but so that there'll be good things to say about God. Now, verses 13 through 18. Remember, I and lots of other people at the funerals of Christian people read this almost every time. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant. To not know. That's not ignorant like we use it a lot. It means to not know. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and we believe that he rose again. And because of that, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, that means Jesus told us when he was still here. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be, we all will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Paul doesn't want us to be a couple of ways. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. He doesn't want us to not know what's going to happen to Christian people, both who have died before Jesus comes back and or are still living when Jesus comes back. He doesn't want us not to know that. Why? Because when you're undergoing persecution... Sometimes even to the point of death. It gives you all the hope in the world, all the encouragement in the world to know that what you're leaving isn't nearly as incredible as what you're going to. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fell asleep. Those who have already died. And we don't want you to grieve. Now, notice he doesn't say, we don't want you to grieve, period. He says, we don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Who don't know Jesus Christ. Who aren't guaranteed eternity with Jesus Christ. 
We don't want you to grieve like them. It's a whole different deal. And then he said, this is what we believe. Number one, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. A lot of people don't believe that. At least enough to commit their life to that truth. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Therefore, we also believe that Jesus is coming back and he's going to bring with him those who have already died. And then he's going to say, and we're going to join them. There's a couple words there that are incredibly important. Those who have fallen asleep in him. going to use those words twice as he finishes this section of the letter. Those who have died, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. This is about Christians. This is about people who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and are willing to endure whatever here to make sure that they get to serve and worship and be with Christ forever. In Him. And then that section, what we're going to see. Jesus is coming back. He's coming down from heaven. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now there's lots of different things and it's hard to get an exact picture of what's going to happen here when Jesus comes back, whether, whether those who have died are already going to be with him, literally, and have been since they died, whether there are going to be a time when they're not awake and alive with him, and as this kind of points to, and then they rise and get to be with Christ before we who are left. The point is, he's coming back, and we who are in him are going to be with him. Did you notice that little word, we who are left? When we gather around the grave of a loved one, we, we say, they left. I've never had to um, be the one or, or one of the ones really responsible for a funeral of a family member, planning all the details and picking out the clothes and picking out a casket that everybody's okay with and picking out a vault and all that kind of business. Never had to do that before until last week. You do that to appease yourself. Some of the things are expectations. Some of them different family members are okay with. Some of the things are not okay with and you have to change so that everybody kind of meets in the middle and they're okay about arrangements. I 
and none of that stuff really matters very much. Mom wasn't there anymore. Neither was your loved one. They've long since, by a matter of several earthly days, gone to be with the Lord. We who are left, it's like we're the ones that didn't get to go to the party yet. We who are left, we're the ones that got left behind. Our son and daughter-in-law recently went to Disney World and took their three children there for a week or ten days of doing Disney and went to several parks over that period of time. And, and our youngest granddaughter uh, fell at one point and bonked her head and the personnel came out and said she was okay and then they trotted out and gave each of the kids a, a, uh, a stuffed animal. But the best thing was, somebody came out, and this was earlier in the trip, they still had six or seven days left, and they gave them these fast passes so that when the rest of us are waiting in line to get on a ride, they get to go up faster and get ahead, and you're sitting there going, ah, well, like that, aren't you? I'm waiting here in this hot sun in Florida, it's 90 degrees for 45 minutes or an hour, and here goes these people, just zoom right up to the front of the line. Well, those people that already went ahead of us, that served the Lord, made a commitment to the Lord at some time in their life, and they stayed faithful. They got a fast pass. And we're still waiting in line. And it's 90 degrees or whatever it is, and there's all kind of stuff going around us and all that, but... We don't get to do the good part until we either pass away or Jesus Christ comes back first. We're the ones left behind so far, and yet we carry on. Paul summarizes that by saying, this is the good part. And we will be, the ones who have already died, we who are left, we'll be with the Lord forever. Now understand, the vast majority of people never even went in the gates of the magic kingdom. The spiritual kingdom. Not because they wouldn't be let in, because they chose not to go in. And we're waiting in the line, the long line. And they've gotten the fast passes. We're going to stand in a moment and sing our hymn of decision. And again, this is just an opportunity to think about and Maybe make a decision if God's Spirit is prompting you to do that this morning. About what we've talked about from Scripture. Maybe it's in the area of living a holy life for God in purity. 
and there are parts of my life I need to clean up and do better at. Or even drastically change. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's this second part and we need to go through the gates and be ready when Jesus returns. If you have a decision to make this morning, make that, please. Don't put that off, not another day. Let's stand and sing together. Let's pray. Don't forget, right after this, we'll dismiss, and then in just a few minutes, uh, Alan and Marilyn Todd will be telling about their uh, work going to Australia. And please stay and hear about that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, your servant Paul is told us how we live in a way that pleases you and honors you and is most effective in our culture. And it's not to join our culture. It's not to be like them. It's to be like you. To live the way that you designed for us to live. Father, we pray for the wisdom to know what that is, to recognize the temptations and, and so forth that would get us off track in that journey. In your son's name we pray, amen.